podcast is brought to you by Ancestors. Ancestors is the UK's largest bleach-free, plastic-free and gynaecology-approved period care brand. From 100% organic cotton tampons, pads and liners to reusable period pants and period cups, Ancestors has got you covered. There's no nasties here. Period. Check out our range at Ancestors.com. Welcome to Sisterhood, the podcast with me, Lucy Lattice, co-founder of eco-period care brand Ancestors. Firstly, I'd like to caveat that when I refer to the word woman in these podcasts, this is referring to anyone assigned female at birth. I want the trans and non-cis community to be included and represented in all conversations in this podcast. Airing weekly, I'll be joined by professionals, informed individuals and those that have been there before to discuss everything from fertility, pregnancy, childbirth and postpartum life to parenting in general. Discussing the realities of day-to-day life, these conversations will be honest and transparent, lifting the lid on intimate thoughts, feelings and sensitive topics, hopefully educating and informing my listeners along the way. My guest today is NHS and private midwife Miranda Zykes. Some of you may know her better by her Instagram handle, midwife underscore Miranda, and for her honest and informative content from top tips for looking after newborns in a heatwave, which was invaluable for me uh, when Ruben was born in the summer, to videos showing the power of the uterus during a contraction. I was very lucky to see Miranda privately at home and about 10 days after Ruben was born as I was struggling with breastfeeding and just, to be honest, the adjustment of a newborn baby. So needless to say, she was absolutely fantastic. And when I ended up back in hospital with mastitis, she coincidentally saw my name on the board during her NHS shift and popped her head in to say hi, which was a very reassuring, friendly face and much appreciated at the time. I'd love to start off by you introducing yourself and perhaps telling us a little bit more about yourself. Well, well, thank you very much for having me, Lucy. It's fab to be here. (laughs) And this is my first podcast recording, everybody, so I'm very excited. (laughs) All the way from West London to East London. We're thrilled to have you. I know, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, so I've been a midwife for 11 years and I've worked for the NHS throughout all that time. And more recently, in the last sort of 16 months or so, have been working privately for myself, uh, just mainly because during the pandemic, it became really clear that there was a need for a sort of hybrid model of care. So between NHS and private, for women to be able to have access access to a midwife basically when they wanted for as long as they wanted and as frequently and that postnatal support which is of course how I how I first met you was coming to see you at home (laughs) so that's sort of in summary where I am today amazing so you mentioned the kind of hybrid care so you're talking between NHS and private yeah exactly so traditionally you kind of either have private maternity care here in the UK or NHS and with the NHS system at the moment it is it's a structured and safe uh, safe system but what is lacking at the moment is time. And so I kind of provide a pregnancy hand-holding service, I guess is the best way of putting <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. So I'm like, I've been described a lot as an older sister, okay. pregnancy older sister. So you book with the NHS, but then if you want that bit extra on the side, you know, access when you want to somebody that's got expert advice all the time in the world, and you can form a relationship with, that's what I do. And then, yeah, postnatally can come and see you at home and, and you still have your NHS structured visits, but I can give that bit on the side. Yeah, so I'm a bit on yeah. the side. 
Yeah, amazing. <laughs> exactly. And actually, that's exactly what you have for me. And, you know, it's interesting that you talk about this hybrid model because definitely, and, and the, you know, how I came about it, about finding you is because I had seen a lot as well about, you know, requiring a little bit of extra support. And, you know, so many people, you know, social media is amazing for this, talk about how, you know, if you, if you are able to, just getting that extra support to kind of tide you over, especially in like the first couple of weeks postpartum when, yes, you know, the community midwives are amazing as are the health visitors but I think you know what a big adjustment is in your life going home with a little baby and I think when I had when I was in hospital pre-discharge after Ruben was born I was offered things like breastfeeding support but actually in that moment I was completely overwhelmed and yes I wanted to, to try and breastfeed but it was kind of you know just one of a list of things that I was wanting to think about and actually you know it was when I got home and realized you know if I was going to breastfeed that was probably the most important thing I need to be concerned about and that's when I sort of realized actually I, I do need to put more sort of impetus into this and and understand it because from from my experience breastfeeding has been amazing but one of the hardest things I've ever done I mean I had no idea hold my um, hand up and say that was very naive of me but I do believe that a lot of women feel similar there's there's a lot of things going into pregnancy and childbirth which to some extent you sort of only learn about when you need to I think it's really interesting you talk about the hybrid model it's amazing that there is this opportunity for women because um yeah there are times when you just need that little bit extra and i agree i think the nhs is amazing fantastic that yeah we're able to offer women an, an additional support channel so so you mentioned that you've been an nhs midwife for 11 years i'd love to hear about kind of your journey into becoming a midwife how did it happen have you have you always loved children was someone in your family a midwife yeah i'd love to hear kind of the, the journey for you sure so i didn't have um an obvious journey into it so it's probably a a relatively good story (laughs) you you asked me whether there was anything in my sort of childhood or um you know did I have a midwife in the family yeah and the answer to that is no there is absolutely nobody on either (laughs) side that was anything to do with healthcare. but it's only been in more recent months that I've actually made a connection and I actually had a sister who died of cot death when I was three months I was three and she was three months old Uh And I was talking, I have spoken to my mum more recently about what effect it had on me when I was three, because I can't remember. And she said, you, uh, you became very angry that people couldn't make her better. And I have really thought about this in the last few weeks and months. And I really think that that somehow instilled in me because I also was a child that played with dolls abnormally long. Yeah, I was like 12. My mum had to tell me to not to stop telling people I was still playing with my dolls. So you put it all together yeah. and it kind of has started to make a bit of a, a bit more sense to me as to yeah. how did I become so emphatically convinced I would be a midwife at the age of eight when yeah. nobody even knew what one was in my family. Yeah. So that's that sort of um, little backstory. Thank you for sharing that. That's, yeah, a very emotional side of these conversations. It is, and it's obviously very much a part of my job. So in a sort of weird and wonderful way, I like the the synergy between my own familial story and then my career. Absolutely. But in terms of the more sort of career career aspect to um, your question, so I did, um, I always wanted to be a midwife, but wasn't really encouraged to do it at school. They were kind of like, well, if you like science, go and be a doctor. I thought, (laughs) oh, okay. So I thought about doing medicine and then went, no, no, I don't want to be a doctor. I just want to be a midwife. But um, I decided to read biology just to keep it broad. And that was a really good thing. At the time, I was like, ugh, it's just another you know four years before I get to where I want to but actually it kept things really broad which has been amazing yeah for every kind of avenue that I've sort of looked into as an adult yeah um I then moved into healthcare communications and PR when I moved to London 
in 2005 um, and I didn't excel at that I didn't excel at that because I didn't like it <laughs> exactly and I still wanted to be a midwife yeah so then 2008 trotted along world recession everyone was losing their jobs as Frog marched out of a PR agency having been there just under a year so I was yeah. owed nothing yeah um, literally carrying all my belongings in a little box um, <laughs> like and you see in the movies yeah it's literally <laughs> and do you know what I walked all the way home from somewhere up near Tottenham Court Road back to West London in that like days of has this just happened yeah yeah this has just happened okay oh, yep here we go <laughs> and that was the turning point where I thought yeah. right now's the right time yeah and so I applied to do midwifery at King's College in London okay um, and uh, yep thankfully got in because yep. that would have been embarrassing with a four year biology degree to not get into <laughs> that um, and then it was then it's a three year degree okay which I did at the age of 28 so it didn't help that you'd done a science degree well, as it, your kind of yeah, undergrad. Sorry, it did help. It did help. It, no, okay. it massively helped. It like, I mean, I'd say I had an easier ride than most because right, I had okay. such a massive, um, you know, I, I was all... Knowledge-based, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. But I, not in terms of admissions. So, for example, you couldn't do sort of like a reduced course because no. you'd done... Interesting. You could, so, okay. Sorry, you couldn't do a reduced course, but what you could... Um, you have if your degree is within five years, that's what they want for right. re- recent academia. But okay. if my if your degree has been eight years ago, then they might ask you to do something like called an access to midwifery course. So right. there are lots of applicants, those straight out of school that need two A levels, right. one of which has to be science. Okay. And if you haven't got that or a degree, then you need to do some kind of access course. Right. And okay. it's it's on a modular basis. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Great. Well, yeah, 11 years. Wow. What an exciting journey it's been. And crazy to think that, yeah, I, I've seen you, seen you in the sort of past the, the 10 the ten year. I guess time must fly really quickly. So for any listeners who sort of are unsure what a midwife is, you know, it's a word that obviously is so you know often used with kind of pregnancy and the sort of the stage. But actually, it would be great if you could explain what a midwife is, you know, how someone who is pregnant sort of during the, the nine months and sort of during pregnancy would interact with the midwife because I think definitely that was something which you know I knew what a midwife was but I, I didn't know the kind of different touch points so I'd love to kind of if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit about that. Yeah of course so a midwife the term the word actually is broken down into mid and wife which means with women um, and midwives have been with women for I mean for, for the ages Yeah. and so our role here specifically in the UK is that we are the lead care provider emotionally and also clinically for women who have no complications or anticipated complications. So during your pregnancy, we would be the first port of the first point of contact that you would see around 12-ish week, 10 weeks actually, for your first appointment. We would be the ones to see you regularly throughout your pregnancy, checking on your health, the baby's health, and also your emotional health. And then we would be the lead provider of all that care again during labour. And once you're home with the baby for the first couple of weeks. So in the UK, if you have if you stay within that sort of normal category, I hate the word normal, because what is normal? <laughs> yeah, totally. But in the medical term, we're talking about those women and babies that have no anticipated problems, then you would just see us as midwives. Whereas in the US, it's very doctor-led. So that's a real difference with us okay. here. Interesting. In the UK, that we are midwife-led if everything is within the norm. Yeah. The moment something starts to creep outside those parameters, yeah. then our res- responsibility as a midwife is to is to identify those pr- is to identify when you're bulging those parameters of yeah. norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of then course. we and then we have to seek obviously the advice from our from our colleagues, the obstetricians, and their role. You see, within the maternity system here, is that doctors train when something's wrong. Midwives, we're all about the norm. You know, yeah. you are a mum or a mum to be having a baby. Yeah. And by and large, 
that's going to go straight be, be a straightforward process yeah. whereas doctor's view is you are going to have a baby and there's any number of things that might go wrong. Yeah. So yeah, we're yeah. going to go on high <laughs> alert. Yeah. So that's where our sort of approaches are a bit different. So yeah, so back to your question, what you know, what is our role as a midwife? We provide antenatal care, antenatal counsel, clinical care for you and your unborn baby, labour care, if everything is straightforward, whether that's in a labour ward setting or birth centre setting, and then help you transition to being a mother in those first few weeks at home. Such an important time, those kind of, yeah, postnatal weeks. They're mad, aren't they? Totally mad. To- yeah. I mean, <laughs> like a bubble. I just wanted to go back to when you when you kind of first find out, find out that you're pregnant, in the UK you self-refer, which I actually had no idea. I actually went to my GP, told her I thought I was pregnant, and she told me that I self-refer. So I did that. But I'd love to kind of understand the difference between a community midwife and those midwives that you, yeah, would kind of see hospital. Sure. Just to go back to your point about how you didn't realise you had to yeah. refer to your GP it was jolly unfair because they definitely can refer you that, oh, you have two routes which is either through your GP yeah. or you can self-refer you can either do okay. it yourself because some people can't get a GP appointment and yeah. they just want to get things moving Yeah. the advantage of going through your GP is that actually your GP can share all your medical history with the hospital so when we get your booking note when yeah. we get your referral we already know which pathway you might need to go into right. Okay. It's interesting because I had a GP appointment and she told me that I had to self-refer. But at that point, I I didn't even understand how it worked in terms of kind of NHS trusts. She said, very, I think maybe she assumed that I had already had a child, which I hadn't. And actually, as the first of uh, my friends, everything was completely new. And, you know, any information that I was being given was completely new. So slightly overwhelming. She that you self-refer and then you choose a trust. And that was all quite complicated because I, you know, I... At the time, um, I was living in one place. We actually moved during my pregnancy, which obviously confused lots of things. At the time, when I self-referred, there were kind of two trusts that I could have been part of. I think that's what it was called. And I sort of had to choose. Um, So already, you know, in in like the infancy of this pregnancy, there was already a choice that I had to make. Yeah, you know, initially wasn't aware of. And, you know, I did a little bit of research and decided which uh, hospital I wanted to give birth in. But just to go back to the community midwife side as well. um, So that was antenatally and then postnatally. I saw a I saw community midwives on day three and day five, and how does how does that side of things work? Because I, I, as far as I'm aware, in I'm now in a new trust, new NHS trust, mm. but there's kind of different teams. That's what a teams, different teams of midwives who kind of look after your care. How does that work? Sure. So COVID's actually really changed quite a lot of our okay. postnatal care stuff. So. To go back to the whole trust thing, because it's actually important, because we're sitting here in London, and the way that things work in London is not really how it works um, typically in the rest of the country, only because when you're out in the country, there's probably only one hospital that you can be referred to. So they don't really have... It's not that they haven't got a choice, it's that there would be no other choice. In London, you are probably... Most people could reach a couple of hospitals. So the choice is put to the women and their families. So that's why your GP has said, well, yeah. you self-refer <laughs> and choose which one. And you're yeah. going, oh, how on earth do I know? And yeah. actually, so many friends, family, clients would say, you know, where shall I go? Mm. If you were to look up the stories about the hospitals you're researching, you will find as you will hear and find mm. as many good as you will bad. bad. Yeah. No, no one comes out on top. Mm. It's down to a, multi- a plethora of, of, mm. of factors that will make somebody's experience. So I'd say just go with probably what's closest to you because the care you will receive so antenatally if you've chosen to go to a hospital that you're not technically in the catchment for which is I think what happened with you because you came to a hospital 
that then your community midwives postnatally yeah. weren't part of. Yeah. So antenatally, if you can get to the hospital, then you can have your care wherever you want. But postnatally, you've got to imagine that the community mid- the midwives from the hospital you've booked at, if that is not your closest one, they can't come and see you at mm. home because otherwise we would be seeing women from our hospitals all over London. Yeah. So um, how the community postnatal care works is that wherever you delivered, you are discharged to the community midwives of the hospital that does cover your area. Yeah. And there's very strict boundaries throughout. So there's a website that we go onto as postnatal midwives and type in your postcode and it'll tell us, bing, right. Yeah. So we know which trust to discharge you to. Yeah. It's then our job to hand over all your information, which should happen. <laughs> it, did, it did, it did. It did, yeah. yeah brilliant. <laughs> and then those midwives would get in touch with you and come and see you at home. So um, the comment I made about COVID, how that's changed, is that historically there'd be groups of midwives in area locations that would come and see all the mums and babies at home. Mm-hmm. But since COVID, they've sort of, some of those pathways have been changed and some trusts in London, not all, some of them ha- will see you at home for the first visit only mm. and then require you and your baby to Mm. go to a clinic to get seen because Mm. that was seen as a way of minimising, you can imagine, people going in and out of houses. And since that, a lot of the trusts haven't returned Mm. because you can see more women if you bring them to a clinic. Um, Some trusts still do all their home visits, which is one of the ones that um, I work at, still do all their visits at home. Um, So that's how, so your postnatal community care will always be from your local hospital, wherever that is, and how many times they see you at home will be according to what their structure is. Yeah. And also it will vary on what your needs are. Mm. Some women have had two babies before. This is baby number three. <laughs> Breastfeeding like a dream. Yeah. Really don't need you. Thanks very much. Have a cup of tea out you go. Yeah. Um, and others will really, really need you. So we would try and give that time to those mums that really need us a little yeah. bit more. So you may get three visits, you may get one. Yeah. Well, Interesting. I was part of a community midwife team who, I don't know, maybe COVID hit them particularly hard, but I did not have any home visits. So my first day three visit was during a heatwave and my appointment was at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I have to admit there was... It was a, there was a bit of a breakdown. I was breaking down. My husband didn't understand what to do, didn't know what the problem was. Basically, it was only a 10-minute walk away. However, it was one, up a hill, two, in a buggy, which I actually hadn't used yet, and three, obviously, sun shining, super bright, and it was, yeah, unbelievably hot. I, did, I hadn't figured out how to work the buggy, the, the cover on the, the buggy. So, one, I insisted that my husband came with me, and two, um, I ended up, we ended up walking up this hill, crossing from side to side to avoid the direct sunlight on my three-day-old baby, which was... Interesting. I mean, it's like frightful. Anyway, it, it wasn't great. I think I was, at the time, obviously, I, you know, I just wanted him to get there because I think there was that initial sort of, oh, he has to go and see midwives and this is, you know, a really important, like, first check-in. You know, I've been on my own for three days, you know, that sort of reassurance. So, obviously, I was, you know, really keen to go, but I think there were a number of factors which really heightened how I felt about it and oh, I was relieved to get home that day. Weirdly, one um, lady that lives really near me was part of a, I can't remember what she called it, a something team whereby, yeah, they came to her and, but they were part of the same trust that I was. So it was something called like a butterfly team or something, um, even though we were part of the same trust and and she lives literally down the road. So most likely she would have been part of the, or sort of would have had physical surgery that I went to 
weirdly she was on a completely different team so I guess the only thing for any listeners is that make sure yeah that you know kind of what setup for the um, community midwives visiting you is but that honestly even if it if it sounds really bad and you're a little bit worried about it that day three visit is so important and always reassuring have kind of baby weighed and that type of thing so try not to worry about it any other advice from you, Miranda? So I was just gonna, <laughs> just going to add, as so I'm there going, hey, me, 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 me. Um, the day three, so typically you'll go home after a baby, after your first baby, after one or two nights, roughly. So we always try and prioritise you for a first visit within 24 hours. So that's normally around day three. But okay. actually the really important one is day five. Day five, okay. Because that's when we weigh the baby. And we try not to weigh them before that because we know that babies are going to lose weight. Yeah. So if we do it before that, then that amount can look very alarming yeah whereas by day five hopefully milk's come in yeah and they start to transition a bit so um that so it's actually day five and we also do the newborn blood spot yes the prick the heel, the heel prick, prick test. test exactly but we would always hope that um a, a first a new a first time mum would have had a um a visit prior to day five but right. it's the day five one that's really that's key. really important yeah okay yeah. Great. Thank you for sharing that. So we've discussed a little bit about midwives. So I would love to briefly discuss childbirth. So just as a little bit of background, I did an antenatal course, which was um, really great. But I have to admit, before I did that, um, and even doing that made me realise there is just a lot to know. You obviously don't have to know everything, but I think knowledge is power. And therefore, the more you know, the better. So whether it's reading, kind of, I don't know, watching videos or signing up to um, online courses or antenatal courses... The, the more you can find out, the better. But aside from that, just for anyone listening who is sort of very early on in this process, are you able to just, without obviously oversimplifying, because it is amazing, but also quite complicated, what happens kind of when you go into labour and the sort of the childbirth, like the birthing period? Because I know earlier you mentioned about a labour ward and a birth centre. And, I, I, you know, maybe there's listeners wondering you know, why you would end up in, in each one of those. Absolutely. Have you got like 10 years? And then maybe, maybe we'll be able to cover it. I, know. I guess childbirth, cool. It can look it can look in a manner of ways and it's not as straightforward as obviously um, perhaps we're going to make it sound now. Yeah. But um, so to answer your first question, the labour ward birth centre thing. Labour ward is an area within a hospital which has midwives and doctors present. Yeah. And that is where women who might have some anticipated complications uh, for either themselves or the babies would be encouraged to give birth. Yeah. Because it's got more medical equipment present. You're normally near the theatres and doctors are very much there as the lead providers majority of the time. Birth centre is more of a home from home environment which is led by midwives and there aren't any doctors there. And that's because there was um, a big study done uh, in about 2011, I think, where 64,000 women, the study included 64,000 women called the birthplace study. And the outcome of that um, study showed that the safest place for a first time mum to give birth was in a birth centre attached to a hospital. Mm. And uh, interestingly, the safest place for a second time mum to give birth? At home. Yep, <laughs> at home. And it's because um, intervention leads to intervention. Yeah. So the moment we get our hands on you, you seem to create more problems. Yeah. Um, so so that's the difference between a birth centre and a labour ward. Um, but yes, childbirth, wow, okay. So in, in simple terms, but I hope not too simple, um, the process of childbirth or birth or labour is ultimately um, the opening... So during your pregnancy, gosh, I'm literally I know, It's sort of like, where do you where? start? I'm literally like, where would I begin? <laughs> so, obviously, during pregnancy, your baby is housed yeah. inside inside the uterus, inside yeah. your tummy. And what stops it coming out is a tightly closed cervix, which is the opening um, from the uterus into the birth canal, which is the, the vagina. So, 
the process of labour is the opening of the cervix to enable the passage um, of the baby's head into the birth canal to be birthed. So labour is that, is the opening of the cervix so the baby can pass through. I guess birth would be when the baby actually emerges, which is the the coming out, or what we call the pushing phase. Okay. Um, And then after the baby is born, there is still another another part that has to happen, and that's the birth or the delivery of the placenta. Yeah, which often is not discussed. I definitely did not know about this before I was pregnant. No, exactly. (laughs) And in in medical terms, we we break it down into first stage, second stage, and third stage. But that's really unhelpful and it's all a bit arbitrary. But basically, first stage is when your cervix is dilating from 0 to 10 centimetres. Okay. Second stage is what we call the pushing stage, which is actually the birth of the baby. And third stage is the the birth of the delivery of the placenta. Right, okay. Exactly. Okay. Sorry, I can't now remember other specifics around that question that you wanted me to answer. (laughs) No, no. But I can take it from here. No, 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 not at all. I think that's, that's a good kind of introduction. One question I wanted to ask was about, again, something that I didn't know about so I think it'd be uh, valuable for listeners is there's a kind of discussion around early labour and sort of when you go into labour you know you get to sort of term or 40 weeks or nine months you obviously have a due date just maybe a little bit of a kind of discussion around that time and what happens because yeah as I say I I definitely didn't didn't know anything until I started to learn yeah so yeah a little bit about then would the, be very interesting sure thing i think the most important thing around due dates oh it's like my nemesis a due date i know I, it, it <laughs> makes my blood boil i um, think it should be a due period oh yes anyway. period per, period certainly for our sisters um, yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> due period due window yes From 37 weeks you are for, you are considered term okay and of course 42 weeks is typically when we sort of view where a pregnancy will naturally have sort of ended because the baby will be born. So you've yeah. kind of got a five-week period. Yeah. So I think look at your due date as somewhere within that yeah. um, because our dating scans aren't uh, overly accurate, yeah. but they're the most accurate thing we've got. Yeah, definitely. So look at a due window because it also means that as your due date approaches, you will become much less stressed. Yeah. Um, and also tell your family and friends your due date is actually two weeks um, later, later yeah. than it actually is. And then you take off that stress. I was definitely given that advice after baby is born, but it yeah. would have been very valuable to avoid receiving texts every single day asking for news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yes, early labour. Oh, I think it's literally probably the hardest stage of labour. Okay. I really do. So what you're referring to with early labour is what I was talking about. Is um, So within that first stage of labour, which yeah. is where your cervix is dilating, early labour refers to the first bit, which is where you're going from sort of naught centimetres to four. Okay. And that's where we typically advise you to be at home yeah. and everybody goes why would I be at home you know <laughs> and actually there's a re- there's a big evolutionary reason why you yeah. should be at home um and it's because to st- when your labor is getting started it's all hormonally driven so oxytocin is the big love hormone that we need to help make the uterus yeah. contract and when you haven't had a baby before those receptors and the hormone levels are building so that early part of labor is about oxytocin building now historically back in cave women days if she was birthing in a cave and the saber-toothed tiger came at her well for the purpose of our survival she needed to be able to up sticks and get out yeah so adrenaline had this has this ability to kick off oxytocin right. and slow your lips so it's very stop starty so in that early phase of labor being at home is when your oxytocin levels are going to be able to build much yeah. more fruitfully than in a hospital where there's these bright lights, which are the equivalent to the saber-toothed tiger and smells that you don't know and people yeah. you don't know and noises. So in the early part of labour when adrenaline can still very much kick off um, 
the oxytocin, as yeah. much chuck in a third hormone that actually I haven't even mentioned yet, <laughs> then then that's why home and early labour is best if you can be supported at home. And there's a plethora of things, but I'm conscious that for the purpose of this question, I, I could go on for another I, hour. I know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, I'd love to ask more about that. I'd love to ask more about that, yeah. but I won't. I so won't. I'm sorry I'll, about I'll let that. you go. <laughs> <laughs> With sort of the early latent labour phase, I think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's when we talk a lot about things like um, breathing and hypnobirthing yeah. and kind of using tools that you can learn um, throughout your pregnancy to, in many ways, kind of not get you to stay at home longer, but to get you to kind of feel that you are in control of your body, the kind of pain and the, con- the contractions you are in control of, and then to understand at which point it is when you would get in, t- in touch with a hospital and kind of understand the next stage. And and just really briefly, what are, because I, I know I I, I learned this in antenatal, but what are the kind of, the, I think there's maybe a couple of things, times when you would call the uh, hospital because you're think, you think you're in active labour? Yeah, sure thing. So early labour things at home, definitely your breathing. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned about the sort of preparation you'd do. That could be your generic antenatal classes or yeah. maybe you've done something more specific. Yeah. Um, what you're aiming for is as contractions, so the beginning of labour yeah. typically will be the onset of like period pains. Yeah. Um, and you get those kind of throughout your pregnancy, yeah. so it's quite hard. So some women are really worried they're going to miss it. All I can promise you is you're not going to miss it. You are not going to miss it. You don't. It doesn't pass you by. So it's really when those period crampy or lower back pains become more consistent and you notice their regularity is becoming yeah. more regular and their frequency is becoming more frequent and they're yeah. becoming more intense. So as those things start to gather, you might start to think, okay, things are really starting to shift now. Yeah. Now, the difficulty is that early labour can be stop-starty and it can mm-hmm. be over a few days for some women, which is exhausting. Yeah. Um, but what you're aiming for, so when would you call the hospital? Number one, you can call the hospital whenever you want. Yeah. People often, like you, say, when should I call? Yeah. The answer is when you want. Yeah. Because sometimes all you need is reassurance over the yeah. phone that you're doing a great job. Let's check in again in an hour. And, yeah. and, and, and that way we can encourage you to be at home in your safe yeah. space for as long as you can yeah. whilst feeling confident. Yeah. But... Medically, what are we looking for? Clinically, what are we looking for? Um, as I explained earlier about um, wanting to be at home so that oxytocin can build, yeah. and we want you to come in when you're around sort of four centimetres dilated because that's when we consider the active part of the first stage of labour. Yeah. Um, it's when your contractions are coming regularly enough that there's about three in 10 minutes and lasting for at least 60 seconds long. Right. And when they've been doing that for an for a couple of hours so quite often we get calls to the hospital and lady goes yep three and ten contractions three and ten and we're like okay how long for yep first one and we're like uh and to be honest obviously that for some women that is the right time to yeah. come in by the way yeah but what we know typically is if you've had that kind of intensity and frequency for a couple of hours then you really are m- more than likely going to be hopefully at that stage of labor where we can then admit you because one of the things about giving birth here in the uk is that we, we don't have endless beds to yeah. just admit women at any stage of that early labour. Yeah. And because we know it's better for you to be at home in the majority of cases, there are caveats to everything I'm obviously saying, because yeah. this is the majority of cases. Yeah. Um, it's better that we can help you to stay at home rather than come into hospital and us go, you know, you're one centimetre, doing brilliantly, yeah. best to go home. Um, and so... That's why we give you as much information as possible, because really it's not until you're in active labour, which is considered four centimetres or more, can we offer you sort of normally some care and space. 
just for listeners to kind of explain that process. So when you do come into hospital, and again, this is something that I absolutely did not know. This was at the hospital I was at. Maybe you know more about sort of hospitals across the UK, but kind of you get given a number from your um, midwife that you see the different kind of periods during your pregnancy. And that's the number that you're cool to know, sorry, to speak to someone in the kind of maternity unit. But then when you call that number, you're actually directed to a triage, a triage assessment centre. They're the ones that actually kind of decide whether or not you need to go I mean, a, a number of routes, really, whether or not you potentially need to go home, potentially whether you are in active labour and you kind of, you know, maybe baby looks like um, it's going to come quite soon. For a lot of women, you sort of go to hospital thinking things are just going to maybe kick off immediately and you're suddenly, suddenly going to be in a birthing room or um, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I think it's important to just say that when you do go to hospital, there is like a sort of interim period, you know, whilst um, you're speaking to um, yeah, clinicians about sort of where you're at. And and I think the one thing that I'll say, and, you know, this is definitely the same, this is what happened um, with my birth and I think happens a lot, is that, you know, there during that time, there are a lot of questions and you know, nothing, there's no sort of textbook of what happens. There's lots and lots of variables. You know, there's, um, you know, as you said, maybe period pains or maybe there's back pains or maybe there's, you know, has my water broken? You know, is this my mucus plug? There's, there's a lot of things going on during that period. As you say, you know, it's really important to feel that you can call the, the labour, the maternity assessment centre to sort of to understand where you might be because I think one thing that's important to mention is sort of um, when if your water does break that there is also a period when you should try and get to the hospital. Yeah certainly so um, water's breaking is the first sign of labour starting for about 10% of women. Um, okay. The majority of women's onset of labour will be period pains type thing. Okay. Um, but actually, when your waters break, the frustrating thing for some women is that their contractions then don't start. Right. So okay. what we need to know is if your waters do break, note the time and just pop a call into that assessment suite okay. and let them know. And they will then assess you over the phone. Um, it, it will be dependent on different factors as to whether they ask you to come in to yeah. check or not. But it is important if you know when they went, because there can be an increased risk of infection if your waters have gone for a long amount of time. And typically here in the UK, after 24 hours, we would want to look well, you would be recommended an induction of labour. Um, but it's really important that you have individualised conversations about yourself with the clinicians because actually we need to treat women, you know, um, yeah. as individuals rather than, yeah. rather than just a massive cross-section. Yeah. Just to clarify, that doesn't mean that like all of the liquid empties and babies just sort of sat there dry. Because I know a lot of people have spoken to me about yeah. this. This is something which you talk about water's breaking, water, you know, water is not actually water, amniotic fluid yeah. comes out. And then there's the maybe assumption that that means there's nothing left. Totally. Um, no, you carry on making amniotic fluid. Right. So typically, um, actually very few women have what we know from the TV as the Hollywood gush, which yeah. is standing oh. standing in the waitress and suddenly... <laughs> No, very yeah. rare. It's more likely to be a trickle. But okay. some women do find it really difficult to know whether it's um, amniotic fluid yeah. or whether, and I'm going to go there, listeners, whether it's pee, okay. because you become urinary incontinent yeah. towards the end. Because yeah, yeah. the weight of the baby yeah. batting for space with the with the bladder. Yeah. Um, and also um, heightened discharge. So, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, so of course. If okay. So if you're not sure, um, then it's really important to call that call your healthcare provider and find out yeah definitely and then and then so finally on just our kind of um childbirth discussion we mentioned at the very beginning about a due date and a kind of due period or, or, or so on and so forth induction um so there is a point um you know um 
you have conversations with your clinician about um, whether or not you will be induced. Obviously, um, I would, um, this is a personal opinion, but I would advocate um, that you um, kind of read up about this yourself. And um, I definitely think listening to your body is really, really important. But there does come um, a point when your clinician will most likely um, um, offer um, induction. And um, when you get to um, a certain uh, date, um, sort of encourage it. I wonder if you're able to just explain a little bit about kind of what induction is and, and why why we get there. Of course. Yeah, induction is a hot topic. Big debate. <laughs> um, basically, anybody that's being offered an induction is, is for one reason, which is we want to induce your labour because we are trying to avoid a stillbirth. Yeah. That's why we induce women yeah. because the doctors have decided that the risk of not inducing you yeah. is greater than the risk of inducing right. you okay, to avoid a stillbirth. Some women will be recommended an induction for medical reasons for either her or the baby for her or the baby but what yeah. you're talking about is going overdue yes yeah, sorry so yes yeah, so, so just to, sorry just to clarify Miranda's point um I'm talking about if you go overdue and you're offered yeah. an induction there are other um uh yeah medical reasons why you might be offered an induction preterm but that's not what we're discussing yeah. right now so um the term overdue means the two weeks after <laughs> the date that we've given you at your 12-week dating scan um and that's because his, historically um the guidelines here in the UK say that after 42, um, we want your baby to be born by 42 weeks. So to offer you an induction in your 41st week of um, of pregnancy. Yeah. And the idea is that at around 41 plus five, and in normal terms, that's 12 days overdue, yeah. 41 weeks plus five days, we would, we would offer an induction with the view that the baby would hopefully be born by 42 weeks. Right. And that's based on studies yeah i use inverted comma studies that show that stillbirth rate increases after 42 yeah. weeks but what a lot of our literature or sorry what a lot of our advice doesn't go into is what that risk looks like and there's a difference between relative risk and absolute risk so yes the stillbirth risk might go up yeah but what does what is the absolute risk so relative and absolute need to be defined and i think when you're looking at having these discussions around Induction. Mm. So you've been recommended an induction, but you're feeling fit, you're feeling well, you know mm. your body, yeah. your baby's moving well, yeah. and you really, really would like to see if you can achieve a spontaneous yeah. labour, because yeah. we know that spontaneous labours will have greater benefit than yeah. induction, because it's obvious, yeah. your body is ready yeah, to do it. the physiological process. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and the baby's telling your body, yeah. I'm ready actually now to be born. Let's work together because yeah. also birth is basically a dance between your body and the baby. Yeah, so if totally. we can let it do it on its let it do its on its own. Yeah. Um, so when you're being recommended, or if you are, it's really good to ask about what your individual risk factors are. Yeah. Are there any? And you can use an acronym called BRAIN, which is okay. benefits, risks, alternatives, instinct, or nothing. And actually, mm -hmm. you and I can use this in anything, you know, even just going to your GP. Yeah. Because that way, you are going to be getting some individualised advice for you, rather than just generic. And it may be that you decide that the risk of going overdue and the increased risk of stillbirth yeah. is actually not greater than the risks that having an induction may bring for you, yeah. which is having um, an, a labour that's being induced and yeah. being in hospital for maybe a longer yeah. period of time and kind of that cascade of intervention. So um, so it's really important to really have a thorough conversation. Yeah. I think a good statistic to bear in mind. So Dr. Sarah Wickham is a, is a mega midwife. She writes books specifically on how women can interpret data and advocate okay. for themselves. Yeah. And particularly there's one whole one about induction of labour okay and I really recommend that people look at all of her work because um I think it helps few women 
in it helps women to view their bodies as their own yeah. and that they've actually got autonomy yeah. and how to have conversations and remind everybody else that this is their body and their yeah. baby. Yeah. And I think that's so important Adv- advocating for yourself yeah. is I like my, is my personal kind of biggest tip to anyone going through this because Definitely, I think that I did, but I think there are certainly instances where I where I could have done more, um, especially coming up to the sort of the due date um, and afterwards. Um, but really quickly, um, before we move on, I just wanted to touch on kind of the increased risk of stillbirth. Um, am I correct in thinking that that is because of the deterioration of the placenta? Is that, or is there more to it? Is that oversimplifying it? I think um, we're not entirely sure, but the gen- right, okay, the generalised accepted theme is that. Okay. Well, you hear placenta stop working. Yeah. But as Dr. Sarah Wickham puts, it's not like it's um, a pumpkin and at midnight, oh, I know that I'm 42 weeks, <laughs> yeah. I'm now going to stop working. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's based on that theory, okay. but I don't think we know enough. Um, and the statistic actually I was going to give before I um, went off on a Dr. Sarah Wickham love affair is that actually <laughs> if we left women alone, yeah. 99 point something percent of women would go into spontaneous labour by 42 weeks. Yeah. But it's because we're sort of just so on top of everybody yeah. that we're not just allowing women to get on with it. So, yeah, I think if you are feeling confident and happy, then you've definitely got some buying time to just sit and yeah. wait. I think um, <clears throat> just in, in a little interlude there. Um, so I gave birth at 41 plus five um, and I um, was induced. Um, I only had kind of the first phase um, and I had a balloon catheter. Is that yeah. correct? Um, and um, I had that overnight. Actually, no, almost... Um, 18 hours and once it was taken out or so as soon as it went in I started having regular contractions and then when it came out um I was in early labor but I think one thing that I mean hindsight is a wonderful thing mm. but I feel like because as soon as that happened and I started having such re- regular contractions and everything started moving along um sort of what seemed to be quite naturally um if I potentially had waited maybe 24 48 hours I wonder if I would have gone into spontaneous labor so I think that's um I don't have any regrets. I'm, um, I'm, yeah, very open about my kind of uh, birth story. But um, yeah, to listeners wondering, I think um, it's so important to advocate for yourself and kind of listen to your gut because, um, yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of sort of um, uh, facts and evidence. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, every woman is different, and I definitely think that you know your body best. So definitely something to to listen to. Um, so um, moving slightly away from childbirth now, and just kind of the relationship between a patient and a midwife or different different sort of touch points throughout pregnancy do you have any kind of learnings or kind of musings or sort of suggestions um for women to kind of make the most of that relationship between you know them and their doctor but in in this case sort of midwife and that side of care yeah sure i think um i think some of the best bits of advice are actually really basic mm-hmm. um so you'll see a midwife typically around 10 times in your first pregnancy and seven times for subsequent okay. pregnancies um and with the way things are at the moment in the uk obviously um staffing is is yeah kind of difficult at the moment um so these tips should be able to should help you to get the best out of sort of what's happening at the moment so when you get your first booking appointment um typically midwives we we the ideal is that you would see the same midwife throughout your pregnancy. We know that. We know that that has untold benefits. But unfortunately, at the moment, it's probably quite unlikely. But what I recommend is that once you've booked for care, if you find a midwife um, within the team that you've been allocated that you like and get on with, um, then find out what days she works and when her clinics run so that when you are booking your subsequent appointments, you can always try and book into those clinics so yeah. you can maximise the chance of seeing the same person. Um 
it's also a really good idea to be really clear um, during your pregnancy where you would turn to for what kind of emergency or just normal question. Um, there's a lot of confusion between what, you know, you get given your pregnancy notes and there are a variety of numbers and sometimes you're left going, oh, I'll phone this number because I need to change my appointment or actually I've got a really urgent question about baby's movements. It's very, it's really helpful to find out at the beginning right. what those pathways are. Yeah. Is there an email address? Yeah. Do they have a mobile phone for their community team? Yeah. And so be being clear on that at the beginning will help you in terms of, um, being able to navigate your needs as you go along because what yeah. you don't need is panic at the lot you know panic when Absolutely. you're already panicking yeah <laughs> um and also um sounds a bit basic but turn up on time yeah we are so short for time yeah. that if you're late it makes her late for all the rest of her appointments and it means you're not going to get your her undivided yeah. attention in perhaps the same way but i also appreciate that you turn up on time and then we're running late yeah and i guess that's just part and parcel of kind yeah. of service we run and write down your questions yeah. in between all your appointments so in the first couple of trimesters you don't see a midwife that often no um i remember i was surprised at how little i saw you saw a midwife and also yeah. how, how few um ultrasounds you have but that's, that's another story that's another story <laughs> so write down your questions and then as you go into your appointment say to her at the beginning of your appointment. By the way, I've got lots of questions. So yeah. she can get you talking about them rather than at the end when she's just about to say goodbye, yeah. bring in the next patient and you go, oh, can I ask you a question? Because that's when we all go, oh God, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, because we would never say never. But yeah, I think those can be some helpful tips. On- yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, important to note there that I um, did see the same midwife um, and the only time that it changed was actually my bad because I went away and I didn't say, I said, I, you know, I didn't mind who I saw and I then came back. Um, and then when I moved, um, I spoke to the, um, yeah, the community team and asked kind of how it would work with New Trust and they said that I could have continuity of care with them. So I, it was sort of, yeah, me travelling a little bit further to see them. But I, that, you know, for me during that phase, it kind of, yeah, put my mind at ease kind of going to a familiar place and seeing familiar people. So, um, yeah, um, yeah, I kind of second that. So um, moving on then to some kind of um, maybe slightly quicker um, questions. I'd love to um, hear the what you, what's sort of the hardest part of your job as, as, a, as a midwife, NHS midwife, private midwife is. I think the hardest, so on paper, the hardest parts are obviously um, the long shifts. Yeah. Um, the vast number of patients we now have to look after. Yeah. Um, but I was reflecting on this, um, you know, over the past few days. Anything is is achievable if you've got a great team around you yeah. um, and when morale is good. But I think everything feels hard when morale is low. Yeah. Um, you're just carrying the weight of everybody and yourself. So I think the hardest part is carrying on when you're all really feeling the effects. And, yeah. you know, we took a big hit, like everybody did with, with the pandemic, and yeah. getting back on one's feet after that has been hard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that I think it's yeah. when morale's low. Yeah, and I have to say, my experience um, being uh, in the the labour ward, um, yeah, everyone was amazing. I mean, I'm yeah, midwives are heroes. Um, yeah, love them. Uh, best part of your job? <laughs> oh gosh, there's so many bits because that's why we keep on doing it. <laughs> yeah. I think the best part is. Um, forming a relationship with women, yeah. being able to anticipate their reactions to things. So being able to give really brilliant care when I know how they're going to react. Yeah. Um, improve and, and knowing that you've really impacted on their confidence yeah. and ultimately had a positive impact. Um, I, I just know that when you know you've made a difference, that is what keeps us going back. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, 
yeah, I I mean, it's just such an important like part of a woman's life, isn't it? Yeah. And I think to be part of that, um, I mean, I don't know because I'm not one, but I can even, yeah, from my perspective, you know, your midwives stick with you. So uh, then moving on to, so I, I mentioned at the beginning that you helped me with breastfeeding. Um, and um, just to kind of preempt any listeners, um, breastfeeding is, is actually a reasonably contentious um, topic and we won't go into it too much, but I would just like to ask um, and kind of hear your thoughts on um, sort of the the struggle with breastfeeding. Because I mentioned, you know, it was, it is, you know, one of the hardest things that I've ever done. And I know a lot of women feel the same. If you, you know, have any thoughts on that, if you have any kind of insight for our listeners. Absolutely. Yeah, breastfeeding is a massive topic. But in, in answer to um, the question that you've posed, um, if breastfeeding is part of the postnatal journey that you plan for, yeah. and that's how you're choosing to feed your baby, yeah. the best bit of advice I can give you is do your do due diligence before you have the baby. Either... Yeah book a group class where they will be addressing breastfeeding yeah. or get some one-to-one tuition, um, whether it's privately or um, seeing whether someone else within the community can provide that. Yeah. Um, the more information you have around how breastfeeding works before you give birth, I think the more likely you are to find your own way through. Um, and it's honestly understanding the physiology of breastfeeding, which is basically supply and demand. The more the baby feeds, the more milk is removed from the breast, the more milk you will make. So that is commonly not understood. Mm-hmm. And actually, once you've got the basics of how breastfeeding works, you're much more likely to be able to troubleshoot your own way through those first few weeks. And I know that being a midwife who does offer private breastfeeding support at home in those first few weeks is that the women that have support along the way and have got a already decent level of knowledge of how it works are more likely to carry that journey on. Yeah. And <clears throat> my passion is not about telling everybody to breastfeed and do it as long as you can. My passion is making sure that women are breastfeeding for as long as they want to and mm-hmm. that they have a choice in when they stop. Yeah. Whereas we know in the UK, eight out of 10 women actually end their breastfeeding journey before they wanted to. And yeah. it's pretty much down to lack of support. Yeah. I remember um, when you helped me, um, I sort of um, had Reuben, um, probably I was, you know, sitting down, I think I was on the sofa in what probably looked like an uncomfortable position, even though potentially the latch could have been good. And you just said to me, you're like, right, we need more pillows because um, if you want to continue your breastfeeding journey for um, however long um, you say you do, then it's absolutely not going to work if you're uncomfortable. You need to have lots of pillows, you need to have whatever it is, a book or phone in hand. um, And that's kind of the best, the best way to get the most out of this for you. And it's completely stuck with me because whenever I'm in a sort of slightly uncomfortable position, I'm like, no, this is not, you know, I'll feel awful tomorrow so I always make sure that I'm kind of in that position primed for great latch but also not discomfort for me and actually yeah that was a great tip um so um moving on now obviously Ancestors is a period care brand um and I think it's important there are a couple of topics which um, I personally don't feel are discussed enough postnatally one of them is sort of mental health. Um, another is kind of body image, and another is kind of menstrual health and mental sorry, menstrual health and um, menstrual wellness. And I wonder if um, obviously there's a lot to unpack there. But from your kind of um, professional um, standpoint, perhaps potentially on sort of menstrual. I know we discussed it uh, before recording the sort of the menstrual health side. If there's any you know wisdom you have to impart, um, yeah, I'd love to hear it. Sure thing. So um, so looking at the sort of menstrual part of that question, yeah. um, you will typically bleed for nearly up to six weeks after having a baby. Yeah. Um, and for some women that 
it looks different for everybody. Yeah. Um, and it's not actually like a period for yeah. six weeks. It's normally the first week. It's really can be heavy like a period. Um, I think it's about knowing what's normal for you and um, at what point you might think that you would need to sort of escalate any any um, concerns to. Yeah. Um, and being confident to do that. Yeah. Um, but also knowing yourself down there. So things change after having a baby. Yeah. There is there's no other way around it. <laughs> but we are designed to give birth yeah. and designed to go back. But if you've got any concerns that things don't feel right after six weeks or so, yeah. then do see your GP. Um, I also think seeing a women's health physio, now this is obviously a um, a luxury. Yeah. I, I appreciate that it's um, a paid-for service. Yeah. Additionally, you can get referred if you've had significant problems yeah. in the NHS, but if you haven't, then you'd be expected to seek it yourself. I think it can be really empowering to know yeah. that you've gone to seek support for, frankly, one of the most important parts yeah. of your body yeah. from an identity perspective, yeah. a sexual perspective, yeah. and emotional and physical. Yeah. So um, I think um, looking at looking at seeing a professional would be yeah. good. Okay. Um, so that's on the yeah, menstrual side. Great. Yeah, no, that's really great advice. I think, um, yeah, we discussed it a little bit as well, didn't we? But um, yeah, from from my perspective, I was just kind of yeah surprised at the sort of um, yeah the postnatal period. And I think really important just to mention, mention there that whether or not you have a C section or a kind of natural vaginal birth, there is still some level of bleeding. Um, I think sometimes there's a misconception there isn't with a C-section, but yeah, there is. There absolutely is. You'll bleed in um, the, pretty much the same way right. because it's the shedding of the uterine lining um, okay. that has obviously been supporting yeah. your pregnancy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you'll still need maternity pads. Yeah. Um, in and you'll need proper maternity pads. You know, normally sanitary towels don't cut it. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> actually, looking at something specific to this time, this period of your life is good. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to quickfire questions. So there's absolutely no right or wrong answer. This is just if you think of anything off the top of your head, if you can't think, then you can pass. Um, so the first one is favourite quote, motto or affirmation? You can do it. Um, as a hack for, a new, for having a newborn? Oh, know that the um, uh, vests can go can be oh, pulled down over the shoulders. That is such a good one. I didn't know that yeah, for at least like three weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah, great one. Um, how do you switch off after a busy or stressful day slash shift? I walk. Great. Um, most embarrassing moment on the job? Oh my God, so many. <laughs> uh, doing a pool berth um, and having my lip salve in my top top of my scrubs pocket <laughs> and leaning over and watching my lip salve start to go round and round in the water whilst the lady is giving birth. And my biro. Oh, great one. The next um, section is questions it's impossible to answer. And there's only a couple of these. So, what does gas and air feel like? Spacey. That's great. And um, how long does labour last? Oh, my God. <laughs> around, once you're in the active part of labour for a first-time mum, around-ish 12, 14 hours. Okay. But, I mean, God, how long is it? Yeah, how, exactly. Strong, that, yeah. That's kind of, yeah, why I asked. Why because it's in we, this section. Yeah, and yeah. also people often, you know, talk, um, you know, in many ways, um, sort of negatively about a long labour. Um, but, yeah, just to clarify there that um, every labour is different um, and we're all individual. Um, so the next session, section is called Mythbusters. So I will say a, um, a sentence and you will let me know if it is true or false. You can predict the gender of the baby from the shape of the stomach. Absolutely false. I would be a miniette there. <laughs> and you. I know, but I mean, um, 
people love to, don't they? It's I one know. of those things. I know. Oh, you're having a point. Oh, Absolutely. you're having a Oh, the shape is a football, you know. Totally. Um, and how you're, how you're carrying it. And also <laughs> that weird one where you dangle something over the tummy. and Okay. Whether... I'm just saying. Um, did you do my, that? If my mother-in-law is listening. She did do that and she was correct. So well, um, she's got a 50% chance of being <laughs> Well, exactly. It's so a one and two. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so we did we did do that. But um, yeah, um, it's obviously false. Um, sex during pregnancy can harm the baby. Absolutely not. Depend. However, there is one scenario where yep. you wouldn't be recommended to have sex, and that's if you've got uh, a, a low-lying placenta that's near the cervix, or if you've been told for any other reason. But by and large, bog standard, low-risk pregnancy, you can have sex. You can have sex, yeah. I think people, um, even though, um, yeah, in most instances it's absolutely fine, yeah. I think there's maybe a sort of a psychological side, which is yeah. um, people struggle to get past, um, but no, from a medical prof- uh, perspective, yeah. as you said, unless um, told not to, um, it's absolutely fine. There's a four centimetre long cervix between the baby and um, the incoming... Yes. Yeah. Understood. <laughs> Thank you. A massive thank you to Miranda for joining us today. Hopefully this conversation has been really valuable to any women out there who are pregnant or hoping to be and who may be feeling worried or confused about this, or this period. Miranda mentioned kind of going through your trust and doing online courses or you can kind of seek out able to private avenues as well. Do give Miranda a follow on social media. Her posts are so useful. Great at kind of putting your mind at ease. So thank you so much for listening and I look forward to joining you again next week. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks for having me.